Hi, and welcome to another episode of the RCH Kids Health Info podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr. Anthea Rhodes, paediatrician and your host for today, and I'm joined by my co-host, fellow paediatrician, Dr. Lexi Frydenberg. Hi, Anne. Hi, Lex. From the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info podcast. So today we're going to chat about eating disorders and disordered eating, which are all part of the one thing, but are a little bit different. Certainly with the pandemic and COVID, I know that we've seen more and more young people presenting with these sort of problems. Is this something you've seen in your practice as well? Yeah, I think and there's been a big influx of eating disorders. I think there was a rise before the pandemic, but it's really come to the forefront. I think also what we've noticed is that it we're seeing children at a younger age. You know, I'm seeing some children age 10 or 11, but what's been great is that the parents have been recognising it early, getting help early and um, really trying to turn it around. We're also seeing some adolescents who may have had eating disorders in the past but been doing well. And due to a number of reasons, including COVID, they may have gone backwards and they're back into this eating disorder spiral. Yeah, it certainly feels that way, doesn't it? And so joining us in the studio today, we have Dr. Michelle Yeo, an adolescent physician here at the Royal Children's Hospital who works a lot in the space of eating disorders. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me, and it's lovely to be here. Pleasure. It's great to have you here to help us talk about some of these things. So I think what would be really helpful to begin with is to talk about the idea of what actually is an eating disorder. Children can have different habits with eating, right from young kids with you know picky, fussy eating through to teenagers and fad diets. So as a parent, it might be hard to know when to worry. What makes something a, an actual eating disorder? So let's maybe explore what is normal eating first. So normal eating is eating when you're hungry, stopping when you're full, eating from a wide range of foods. There's not a great big list of good foods and bad foods. Food is there for enjoyment, for celebrating and for nourishing the body. There is also then... Um, the concept of disordered eating, where um, one starts to feel worried about eating certain foods and skipping meals um, or eating compulsively. And that means eating when you're not really hungry for all sorts of reasons, whether it's emotions or boredom. Um, And going on wacky diets where you're cutting out food groups um, at different points in time. And then that could then lead into an eating disorder. And then when it comes to an eating disorder, um, what we really think about is the behaviours around that, um, obsessionality around that, and how one person functions. So eating disorders are serious mental illnesses with physical consequences. So then in terms of actual eating disorders, can you run us through the main types of those? A lot of people listening might have heard of anorexia or bulimia and binging. Just give us a little bit of an overview of the different types. I guess probably what has grabbed the most attention in the media is anorexia nervosa. 
Um, anorexia nervosa is a tormenting, horrible illness where there is this drive for thinness and a worry that one is much larger or fatter than what actually their body is. This can be driven by cutting down food or exercising compulsively in order to lose weight. Then there is also bulimia nervosa, which also garners quite a lot of attention. Um, bulimia nervosa is a condition where a person often restricts their intake and then binge eats because they are hungry. And by binge eating, I mean eating a large amount, a very large amount in a short space of time. And feeling so guilty about eating and so uncomfortable that they actually almost immediately have to get rid of the food that they've consumed by either vomiting or actually using laxatives um, to actually purge the food. Then there are also other eating disorders, um, which are probably um, also very common, such as binge eating disorder. And um, binge eating disorder is eating large amounts of food frequently, um, but they do not have the purging or uh, vomiting component. There is also avoidant restrictive food intake disorder or ARFID, which is a new diagnostic term, but we know that um, this, this has existed for a long time. This is where children, young people and adults actually avoid foods um, because of the sensations um, or tastes um, of the food and they restrict their intake because of that and often these people have difficulty with their, with their growth or getting enough nutrition. They do not, however, have the body image disturbance that comes along with anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. Does disordered eating often become an eating disorder or are they quite separate things? Disordered eating can lead towards an eating disorder. What we know is that persistent dieting um, over time is a big risk factor for an eating disorder. Okay. And who's most at risk of eating disorders? I think many of us think it's more common in girls and particularly teenage girls, but actually from my practice and I'm sure from yours, we're seeing a huge variety. Absolutely. So it used to be thought, particularly anorexia nervosa, used to be thought as a um, white person's disease um, uh, affecting girls. However, we are now seeing eat eating disorders spanning all groups, um, all socioeconomic groups, even in migrant and refugee populations. And I would say that 10% of eating disorders occur in boys. And what about during the pandemic, Michelle? So we were talking, Lexi and I, as we started today, it seems like this is more common. We're experiencing this as doctors seeing these you know, young ch children and um, adolescents more often presenting with concerns around eating habits and behaviours. Has that been a real thing? That has definitely been a real thing. Our service has doubled in terms of numbers of young people presenting to the service. Wow. And um, referrals have also gone up more than double. Some of the 
problems that young people face during the pandemic included remote learning, Mm -hmm. um, where they weren't able to follow their usual routines. There was also community sport being cancelled. There was also a lot of talk about putting on the COVID kilos and hence um, lots of um, young people were saying to us they did not want to have that. And so they decided to start running, do more exercise, um, and they focused on trying to cut down their food intake. Um, And also, because they were on the internet so much, they were able also to check out influencers kind of promoting the healthy Mm. lifestyle. They were spending more time on social media, which we can talk about later about the effect and influence that may have on eating disorders. I've also heard a theory and, and thought about this, that young people during the pandemic, there wasn't a lot they could control. Life seemed out of control, overwhelming. But one thing that people could control was the amount of food that they ate. Exactly. And the, the exercise that they did. And you mentioned before as well, Michelle, that an eating disorder is a, a mental health condition. I think it might be helpful for parents listening to understand a little bit more about that. So... When I say it's a mental health condition, what happens is that um, their thinking gradually becomes much more obsessive Mm -hmm. um, and the focus on food becomes really great. Um, And there is this tormenting thought in their head where all they think about is the food they eat, how they can reduce how much they eat, Um, And how do they actually avoid putting on weight? As a parent, what are the things we need to think about? How can we spot whether our child is developing an eating disorder? So there are a number of um, warning signs um, and I guess largely these can be categorised as um, behavioural warning signs, physical warning signs and psychological warning signs. I might start off with behavioural warning signs. So some of it would be, um, you know, weighing themselves frequently, um, trying to avoid meal times and also hiding food and lying about their eating. Sometimes it might be, as I mentioned earlier, cutting out food groups and skipping meals. And I think the ones I keep hearing about are cutting out carbohydrates or dairy or sugar. And a lot of parents are thinking, oh, great, they're becoming healthy, but it becomes an obsession. That's exactly right. So I think on one hand, it is healthy. However, if it becomes too healthy and becomes obsessive, that's not right. And that's pretty hard, I imagine, for parents to sort of understand where's this line? At what point do I need to get worried? And you mentioned before function and, you know, socialising and things like that. Is that really perhaps the red flag? I think so. So if young people and children are... um, omitting kind of meals and avoiding meal times or getting very anxious when eating, um, that's a warning sign. Um, the other warning signs are weighing themselves frequently, um, checking out their body and um, being very critical of their own body. So would parents 
notice that their child's looking at the mirror more or talking about their body features a bit more often? Absolutely, they are, yeah. And just on that point, a lot of parents ask, should I take away scales? Should I not have scales at home so my child can't weigh themselves? Do you have an opinion on that? I actually think that that's probably not a bad idea to not have scales in the house, simply because I think the focus shouldn't be on the number. And so there's some of the behavioural signs. You mentioned, Michelle, that there's physical warning signs as well. So physical warning signs would include uh, loss of weight, which is visible, or fluctuations in weight. Um, Then there's the fatigue and tiredness. Um, There's also feeling dizzy and faint, complaints of headaches, and also um, for girls, loss of periods is a big warning sign. People are sometimes not aware how serious it can be physically and exactly, you know, that in fact children and young people can and do, fortunately not very often, but actually die even from an eating disorder. Out of all the psychiatric illnesses, eating disorders carries the highest death rate. Can you talk to us a bit about what happens then to to a body? So that's affecting the heart and that's really how that process kind of becomes so physically serious? Yes. Remember that they're in the point in their life where they're actually meant to be growing and developing and therefore gradually gaining weight over time and gaining height as well. If they're losing weight, what happens is that um, the heart rate slows down, um, the gut also slows down, so they actually do feel physically full because their gut slows down. It's a muscle and um, you need to beat your muscle for it to work. Yeah, right. And they could get constipated too. and. The main problem, I think, is the heart slowing down to the extent where um, you could have another part of the heart kind of develop a rhythm um, and and develop arrhythmias. And arrhythmia being an irregular heartbeat. That's the big warning sign. The other thing is that um, your blood pressure drops um, and becomes very low and therefore someone feels faint and dizzy. Getting checked by a health professional, GP or a specialist such as a paediatrician is often necessary, particularly because of the medical issues, the heart issues and um, the balance of what we call electrolytes in the blood as well. That's exactly right. So the electrolytes in the blood can go funny um, simply because um, of malnutrition, but also because of vomiting. So the other sign that is alarming is vomiting. And so some eating disorders will or might include vomiting, but not all of them. Is that right, no, Michelle? No, that's right. So bulimia is a disorder where one um, binge eats and binge eating means eating a huge amount of food in a very short space of time. And then feeling so overwhelmed and guilty that one has to purge uh, or vomit to get rid of the food. Other people also use laxatives to try and get rid of the food. And um, both of those can bring electrolyte problems. Okay. And I often think there's a misconception that you have to be underweight to have an eating disorder. But actually, we find many children of a healthy weight or even overweight, they can still be diagnosed with an eating disorder. That's exactly true because um, if you lose weight from a higher weight, 
um, you could have an eating disorder. The other thing is that it's a mental illness and we need to take into consideration what the, the young person's thinking is about and how obsessive that thinking is. So that probably brings us to the sort of psychological signs or, or, or clues that something might be happening. That's right. So some of these would include, I mentioned, um, lots of anxiety around mealtimes, but because malnutrition also affects the brain, it can cause um, one to become much more anxious and sad. So withdrawing from um, the family and from friends um, could be a sign of an eating disorder and later on sadness and depression as well. And I'm actually finding quite a few patients present or, or young adults present with brain fogginess and concentration difficulties. That's true. And it's become more apparent this year. And unless you ask the question about their eating habits or their attitudes or behaviours around food, I think we're often missing it because we think, okay, it's been COVID, we're getting back to a normal routine, there's anxiety, depression, etc. But I think as, as doctors, we need to ask the questions about food and so do parents. That's true. And I, I, I guess I forgot to mention that, you know, if one is already anxious or depressed or not coping so well, an eating disorder can sneak in on the back of that too. So you mentioned um, that there's quite a few signs, Michelle, and sometimes it can be hard perhaps for parents to spot those or see that they're all happening at once. So um, have you got any recommendations of checklists or ways that they might be able to keep track of those things? So there are quite a few checklists on the internet and um, certainly um what we will be publishing later will be checklists that you can look for yourself. Feed Your Instinct is one of them um, and it provides lots of little checklists that a parent can go through, print them out and bring them to their doctor. Great. Um, so we'll add those to the show notes. Yeah, because I think you can sometimes feel like you have to be able to see all of these things happening to be no, you know, confident as a parent that there's a problem. But they may not all happen at the same time. They might not all happen um, in a particular order, but there's just different things that you're spotting and that may be enough to raise the flag and think, okay, I need to actually go and chat to someone about this. Exactly. And I would say that, you know, the general practitioner or the paediatrician should be your first port of call, even if you're the slightest bit concerned. I think that brings us really to the next question, Michelle, which is if you're a parent and there may certainly be people at home listening who are worried about their son or daughter or perhaps, you know, a friend of the family, what should they do as, as the next step? I think the next step would be actually taking them to um, their family doctor to um, talk to your young person and get it checked out after you know the parent has already chatted to the young person and see what they what the young person tells them i imagine that might be quite challenging sometimes to actually get everyone to the place where they might think oh maybe this is a health concern particularly where a lot of these behaviours start out as seeming quite healthy. So I know people might feel pleased, for example, during the pandemic that their teenager was getting, you know, off the screen and outside and focusing on their health. And to begin with, it might seem like something really positive that perhaps as a parent you even support. Exactly. And then it starts to creep in that, oh, actually, now I'm feeling really worried about this. 
I guess parents could actually say to the young person, I can see that, you know, you've made great gains in what you've been trying to do. However, there are certain things that worry me. And these are one, two, three. Yes. Um, and your focus uh, and over focus on your body and your weight um, or the exercise seems to have taken over. And you mentioned before if these sorts of habits or obsessions around eating and food and and a person's body start to affect their ability to do normal things like perhaps go out for a meal with their friends or you know socialize in a way that is typical um, that might be something that you can point out to your child you that's know, right it's stopping you doing these things that you used to do and enjoy and that's now making me worried. Mm -hmm. And so the pathway, if the GP is worried and concerned as well as the parent and child, what's the next step? Who gets involved in the management team? Often GPs might involve um, a psychologist um, and a dietitian. Um, sometimes they, if they're particularly worried, they might send the um, young person to a paediatrician as well as a psychiatrist. Um, however, I think it's important that the, the parent feels comfortable that the team are talking together and that um, the parent is also part of the treating team as well. So I think that's really important that it's a team-based approach. You need multiple people, including the family, to be on board. That's exactly right. And we often hear that eating disorders can be really difficult actually to treat and some people say that you might never fully recover. Can you talk to us a bit about that? I think that eating disorders are not easy to treat. However, we know that early intervention um, with um, children and young people um, is key and that actually quite a number of young people can actually recover fully from an eating disorder. So if you actually get in early, if the family is supportive of the treatment, they give the young person the best chance of recovery. I have had the privilege of speaking to a patient advocate who had um, suffered from an eating disorder for a very long period of time but had recovered. I asked her what her advice to me was. And she said to me, never give up hope and hang in there with the young person. Incredibly important, I think. And this idea that ignore it all and it will go away on its own or not giving too much attention to this is the best way for it to get better is really a myth and not what we should be doing. That's exactly right, yeah. Should we talk a little bit more about just the different approaches and therapies? I think it's really important um, to have therapists such as dietitians or psychologists who are expert in this area because it is actually quite a particular treatment course and there is an evidence base to it. So can you just talk a bit about that with the psychology input and the dietitian input? So if um, the child or young person is diagnosed with a specific eating disorder, it is helpful to get help from um, a psychologist who has expertise in this area. Um, what in young children and um, teenagers is um, the mainstay of treatment is called family-based treatment where the young person um, 
is actually given the chance to recover physically first. And it's all about building nutrition. The therapist helps the parents take charge of um, the young person's eating because with eating disorders, um, the young person kind of loses judgment on what they are able to eat um, and what is actually necessary for them. So this is where the parents take charge. Which is often a really complex dynamic and really hard in the particularly upper teenage years. That's right. That's right. It's incredibly hard for parents to take charge of anything when it comes to adolescence and that period where, you know, independence is actually a big part of adolescence and pulling away, if you like, from parents and towards peers and making your own decisions. So it's such an added challenge to then turn that around as well to try and get that young person well. It is. But I think one has to remember that it is only for a period of time. And what the focus is on is nutritional recovery um, so that the body can function normally. And then the parents kind of slowly step back and the therapist helps the parent do that and helps the young person start eating on their own. I think we can't underestimate that importance, obviously, of the nutritional recovery because it creates the cues, doesn't it, for the body, so of fullness, for example, and the ability to actually think more clearly and all of those things that when um, a person is in a state of chronic starvation or malnutrition, their body doesn't give them the right messages. So not only are they misinterpreting things, but they're also no longer getting those messages. So it becomes really hard for them to pull themselves out of that. That's true. And also, I think that when the brain is starved, it can't think rationally. So I think that it's really important that you actually got to feed them first. And then um, you can work on um, the psychological treatments aimed at the young person um, after nutritional recovery. And what I found really fascinating is that sometimes when a young person is re-nourished and, and re-fed, some of the mental um, health concerns such as anxiety and depression have actually gone away. So even though we think that might be the driver initially, it's actually often not. That's exactly right. And we can actually sometimes see in hospital when we're actually feeding the young person, what a difference they... They, they get their personality they back. They do, they do. It's okay. not like a, a mask that they're wearing. Yeah, and I think that is known from other research in different situations where people have become malnourished or chronically starved that is not related to an eating Mm -hmm. disorder in the first instance, but then some of those patterns of thinking develop there as well. So that's important for us to talk about and remember because it also relates a bit to the idea of the cause. And I think it would be really helpful to talk about um, this concept of blame, if you like, when it comes to causes for eating disorders. So I think that in the past, parents have been unfairly blamed for causing eating disorders, mothers in particular. However... Mothers get a hard rap generally, I think, Michelle, don't they, (laughs) across lots of things. But yes, without a doubt, it has been sometimes part of that talk or perspective when it comes to eating disorders. Yeah. I I believe that... um, you know, certainly there, there is a genetic predisposition to eating disorders and you actually see clusters of eating disorders in families. 
having said that, that, you know, there are large environmental triggers as well. So if you have a genetic predisposition and then something happens in your life, then, you know, that that might trigger an eating disorder. Like a pandemic, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I think we can't underestimate the role of social media and influencers and, um, you know, the society desire to be, in inverted commas, thin. That's right. How have you seen that evolving over the last 20 to 30 years you've been working in this space? So I think that social media um, has driven the... the, um, age downward trend in eating disorders. The likes that you get for looking a certain way um, probably helps these children and young people kind of internalise what they would like to look like. I think there's an obsession about body image um, across the board at the moment, which is hard. And there's also just an unprecedented level of looking at yourself in images. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we... I think back to my own childhood and I, I don't recall really a handful of photographs, you know, that were like in some album that you – I can picture them all because there might be ten, you know, and you pull them out and that's it. That's yes. all you ever saw of your your own um, image really, apart from a mirror here and there, I guess. But otherwise there was not this constant reflection and then what we see in young people is the critique and of themselves mm-hmm. as well as one another – at a, a level that is just nothing like we've really experienced before. That's right. I think, I mean, it's really hard in society at the moment, particularly as a parent. What can we do as parents in terms of monitoring their social media or, you know, stopping our children viewing certain platforms? What are your thoughts? Social media does have its place in terms of being connected to friendships, but I think that the time needs to be limited. There has to be a discussion between parents and young people about, you know, what social media platforms they are on and, you know, what um, is actually um, kind of driving their interest um, within these platforms. I think more and more when you talk to young people as well, um, I think even of my own kids who are really just coming towards teenage years, but there's already this understanding that what you see of people is not necessarily real. They've sort of got this idea already that, oh, well, you know, someone's done this to an image or done that, or there's a filter or whatever else. And that's important and maybe a healthier thing that they're sort of starting to know that every image you look at is actually not a reflection of reality and having that conversation with your kids is important, I think. One of the things we often hear about is athletes and particularly, you know, children and young people who are already exercising a lot. Does that make them more likely to develop an eating disorder? So... Very recently, the Australian Institute of Sport and the National Eating Disorders Collaboration actually put out a position statement on this. Um, What we know is that disordered eating and eating disorders probably are much more prevalent in the athlete population. And there are certain sports that actually, um, there are more eating disorders in certain sports because of the sports emphasis on the aesthetics or the way a person looks um, and the type of activity they do or the type of weight they need to be. Um, And I'm thinking about gymnastics, I'm thinking about dancing, I'm thinking about weightlifting and rowing. Um, 
and diving as well. Also, I think that, you know, athletes are under huge pressure to perform. So I think that there are then many um, insecurities that play into their minds uh, around how they eat or how they look that perhaps feeds into the thoughts uh, which can become obsessional. We can't prevent every you know, illness, particularly not every eating disorder, but if parents are able to have some of those conversations, then that might help to protect their child a little bit. And then what I'm hearing from you today, Michelle, is really being aware of signs that something might be concerning to them when it comes to their patterns of eating and then seeking help early is the most important thing. That's right. And I would put in a plug for um, having family meals together. I think that's an incredibly protective um, feature and it also brings the family together um, and it's protective on a number of different levels, not just eating disorders, but mental health as well. The other thing that parents can do is actually model um, healthy eating um, and physical activity for children and adolescents um, and not to have too much talk around dieting and body criticism and also I think um, helping young people see themselves um, beyond physical characteristics and looks. Absolutely. And they sound like the simple things, you know, eating together and talking about what matters, which is things on the inside, just not just the outside, but actually they're often forgotten and sometimes harder to do than we think. So a great thing for us to all focus on. Yeah, and I think there's nothing more inspiring as a, a paediatrician or doctor to see adolescents or young people come out of their eating disorders and recover. And often um, these young adults will go and be involved in helping and speaking to other children and inspire them. So I think, you know, it's really important to know that it is a difficult disorder, but there is hope, there is really good evidence-based treatment from a team approach, but many people recover from eating disorders and live a completely normal life with normal eating patterns. Yep, completely true. I think that's a great positive note to end on. Thanks so much, Michelle, for coming in and chatting to us today. You're very welcome. That's a pleasure. Lots of important things we've covered. If you've enjoyed listening, then please jump online and give us a review and share some of the information that you've heard. We've talked about some resources. We'll put a link to those in our show notes. And thanks for listening. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.